Well, in this lecture I'm uh, forced really to cover um, a lot of ground in a relatively short span of time, so I'll have to admit uh, quite a lot of detail and complexity that a uh, lengthier treatment would allow. Um, I'm dealing with six common justifications for terrorism, and, uh, and one of them I'll have to just mention in passing. Uh, uh, though I can say more about it if people want to know. In the projected book I'm doing on this, uh, I'll probably material here will be expanded into two, possibly three chapters, so it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a uh, condensation. And to get through it, I, I may have to gallop a bit at certain points and, or, or just a bit more than I intended to. OK, well, um, that's uh, our topic. I thought we just should remind ourselves of the tactical definition of terrorism that I spelled out last time because uh, it's uh, relevant to uh, all of this in a way, uh, though some of the things I say can apply to other definitional strategies as well. The first one I uh, want to look at is the, uh, the case of utilitarianism or consequentialism. I'll probably say utilitarian all the time or a lot of the time but understand and consequentialism as a broader, thinking of that as a broader theory encapsulating utilitarianism. There are other ways to think of those two, but that'll do for now. Well, according to the tactical definition, terrorism violates the principle of discrimination in uh, just war theory, and so it would seem that terrorist acts must be immoral if the principle stands. The first issue about justification, therefore, arises from the rejection of the principle. Leaving aside moral cynicism or moral scepticism, Many theorists think the discrimination principle would most certainly be rejected by a consequentialist moral theorist who took the view that the only moral consideration relevant to terrorism was the overall outcome of terrorist acts. In fact, there are versions of consequentialism and more narrowly utilitarianism that could accept the principle. Act utilitarians, or more broadly act consequentialists, might accept the principle as a rule of thumb or generally useful principle, but not one that can have more basic application. If the outcomes of ignoring the principle are beneficial overall, the principle can be legitimately rejected. Some utilitarians are more careful about allowing such exceptions, since this might well produce suboptimal results from the point of view of utility itself. Those who follow this path sometimes think of a rule adopted in this way as fine for the common people who cannot be trusted with utilitarian calculations. So the principle of the immunity of non-combatants could be recommended, at least to the common folk, as an absolute principle because it is the morality best supported, for them at least, by well-considered outcomes accessible to the clever theorists. The theorists themselves would think it best for the basic role of the principle of utility in this matter perhaps to be kept secret from the masses, lest their calculations disrupt the moral stability required to maximise utility. Uh, Sidgwick, of course, and Peter Singer sometimes write in this vein. Well, I'm not particularly sympathetic to these rather condescending theories. We might call them the posh boys theories uh, of, uh, of morality. But the point here is simply that consequentialism need not be so dismissive of the principle as is often supposed. Indeed, other forms of indirect or rule utilitarianism or consequentialism do not involve such elitism. So Stephen Nathanson, in a recent book, has gone so far as to argue that rule utilitarianism should embrace the immunity of non-combatants as an absolute moral principle that should govern the conduct of all. He argues that it's clearly the best rule 
to minimise the slaughter of war. Even various uh, act utilitarians uh, or consequentialists who fall short of Nathanson's uncompromising attitude need not be as concessive to terrorism as is often supposed. Quite apart from the fact that they can support the discrimination principle as a rule of thumb, their attitude to the likely outcomes of acts or policies of terrorism should be more complex than is often claimed, even by consequentialists themselves. Indeed, the general feeling that utilitarian consequentialist considerations favour terrorism, as I define it, is highly dubious. It gets what plausibility it has from the concentration on consequences, but ignores the universalism implicit or explicit in consequentialist and utilitarian theories. It may be plausible in some circumstances that terrorist tactics will serve a particular cause well, but what has to be shown is that they will serve it better than any other available methods that produce less harm, and in addition, that the success of the cause will produce the greatest benefits of the greatest number all round, not just for the agents and their associates who espouse that cause. Terrorists may very well think that the triumph of their cause is for the benefit of the universe, but this has to be established by arguments that they seldom employ. It's not just that their cause may be a bad one, for even if it's a good cause, its triumph by such means may not serve the greater good overall. Many justifications of terrorism that appeal to consequences are not really thoroughgoing enough to be genuinely consequentialist in the ethical sense. To be specific, the defenders of terrorism seldom advert to the likely general effects of their resort to attacking the innocent, such as the impetus it may give uh, to other, less worthy agents of violence to do the same. In the same category of unconsidered effects is the effect of their terrorist policies upon their own characters and future behaviour. It may be that their terrorist inclinations can be left at the doorstep when they enter their kingdom of independence or win their victory, but there's plenty of history to show that that's unlikely. Terrorists are also sometimes fairly cursory about the other options available to them and about the likely connection between their tactics and eventual success for their cause. Nonetheless, of course, it is possible that a consequentialist justification for terrorism could be available in certain circumstances, since utilitarianism and consequentialism do not regard the intentional killing of the innocent as inherently wrong. It all depends upon the contingent outcomes consequent upon such killing. This is, I think, one of the many reasons why consequentialism is a defective moral theory. But my brief here is not to refute consequentialism, but merely to show that its relevance to any project for justifying terrorism in some some circumstances uh, is overrated. It's noteworthy that in Steve Nathanson's treatment of terrorism that he dismisses such circumstances that are sometimes appealed to by those thinking that they're being consequentialist about it as deeply unrealistic for the real world. This discussion leads on to another form of justification that's uh, that's often uh, confused with the consequentialist approach. This is the justification from self-defence. When terrorists, either state or non-state, defend their actions by saying that they had no alternative if they were to succeed, the form of their purported justification can often be better framed as an appeal to self-defence or something very like it, rather than an appeal to best overall consequences. The idea is that when someone or some community is threatened with very great evils, they may defend themselves whether or not this has the best overall consequences, more broadly considered. Of course, there are, or one might think ought to be, Uh, some prudential limits on what they can do. If defence is totally futile and capitulation will involve bad outcomes for the defenders well short of annihilation or slavery, (coughs) then there's a case for surrender. But the right of self-defence 
does not seem to be postulated on having the best overall outcomes for the world. If I'm being attacked by a man wielding an axe, it does not seem relevant to my right of self-defence that my injuring or killing the attacker may have disastrous consequences for his family or his non-complicit associates. Suppose he's a doctor with certain unique specialist skills working in an isolated community that desperately needs him. He has become temporarily deranged and think I, thinks I pose a grave threat to him. My killing him in self-defence or even badly injuring him might therefore have worse overall effects than my allowing myself to be killed. Knowledge of this fact may well have a bearing on my seeking uh, more uh, desperately for other methods than defensive violence in dealing with the attack. But if they're not available, then it would seem clear that I'm entitled to defensive violence, even, most would say, to the point of killing. Extended to the collective level, there seems at least as strong a case for group self-defence. Uh, notorious, uh, notoriously, for those who worked in this area, there are problems about the extension from the individual case to the uh, collective one, <coughs> particularly when it's not lives that are at risk from the attack, but territory or political rights, as argued by David Rode and Norman, uh, Richard Norman and others. But that's not, I think, directly pertinent to my point here. This is enough to make a case that the self-defence justification is distinct from the consequentialist or utilitarian justification in general. How then might it pertain to justifications for terrorism? Here the argument is that the defence of your community against attackers and oppressors entitles you to do whatever you can to defend yourself. This is not strictly a consequentialist claim in the theoretic sense of consequentialism as we saw, though it appeals to some important consequences. Nonetheless, it shares some of the problems of the consequentialist mindset. A major difficulty is that when it comes to attacking the innocent as a means of self-defence, this response involves spreading the meaning of the self-defence justification too broadly. To see this, we should note that there is a significant moral difference between self-defence and self-preservation. The former is much narrower than the latter. The justification for the discrimination principle is related to this difference. Suppose you're walking peacefully home from work one night when someone jumps out of an alleyway and attacks you with an axe. This is an example I've used elsewhere. <clears throat> you struggle with the assailant, call for help, but to no avail. Then you remember that you've confiscated a handgun from one of the children you teach at school. It's that sort of school. Actually, when I use this example in the United States, nobody laughs. Uh, <clears throat> and you still have the, the weapon on you. As you struggle, your hand closes on it and you find yourself able to point it at your attacker's chest. Surely, when all else fails, you are entitled to shoot and even kill the assailant. Extended to collective agents, this is the basic idea of legitimate violent defence against aggression that lies at the heart of modern just war theory. The assailant has by his actions placed himself beyond the normal moral protection against violence directed against his person. <coughs> this has implications for what violence you're licensed to employ. We can see this by varying the example a little. The axe attacker is again your problem and you've been forced to reach for the confiscated gun. Now suppose in the course of the struggle that your gun was pointing not at the attacker but across the street at a small child staring in amazement at what is going on. You reason if you, that if you shoot the child, uh, its screams will distract the attacker and perhaps attract to the scene others who can offer to help you. Are you entitled to shoot the child? Surely not. The child is not attacking you, nor is she complicit in the attack. The prosecution of the aggression gives you the right to direct violence against those who are attacking or positively assisting the attack, not against others, even if maiming and killing others helps your cause. Intentionally killing or wounding the child is aimed at helping your self-preservation and may well do so, 
but it's not an act of self-defence, nor would it be even if the child were the attacker's daughter or niece, though it might be different if they were bringing another axe. Self-preservation is, of course, a powerful human motivation, and as a value, it also provides a moral warrant for many things. It licences the refusal to take certain sorts of risks, even risks related to helping others. In extreme cases, it allows one person to refrain from gravely risking her own life to save the life of another. Even so, it will not stretch to killing innocent others in order to protect one's life. This important truth may be generalised from the individual to the collective level. A community may be entitled to defend themselves from death, or perhaps from other major things, by directing lethal violence at their attackers, but they have no warrant from self-defence to attack bystanders, even where such attack offers the prospect of preservation from the original attack. Uh, Even so, self-defence will not licence the attack upon those who are not prosecuting or aiding in the prosecution of the attack. Hence, on the face of it, self-defence cannot be enlisted in support of terrorism. I say on the face of it because there's a twist to the self-defence story that we'll need to examine later. The tit-for-tat argument. A third justification might be called the tit-for-tat justification. The idea here is that terrorism is immoral as long as the other side isn't doing it. But if the enemy resort to it, then you may do so as well. This response has an undoubted psychological appeal, but its form surely admits of the reply that two wrongs don't make a right. More expansively, the tit-for-tat idea is most persuasive where the prohibitions in question are basically conventional. If two neighbours, A and B, have an agreement not not to have noisy parties that will disturb the peace of the other, then it's incumbent on both to adhere to the rule. But if A ignores it, then B may be entitled to respond by having a noisy party himself. Certainly clear evidence that A will not adhere to the prohibition releases B from any duty to do so. Yet it's surely clear that not all moral prohibitions are of this nature. Social contract theory has some plausibility for some areas of morality, but it's quite implausible for others. If some depraved person murders my child, then this gives me no licence to murder his child or any other child. Yet something of this sort is often suggested in the context of what is sometimes called asymmetrical war. When one side targets non-combatants, perhaps in order to make up for its inferiority uh, in conventional military power, or where it has superiority in order to reinforce that superiority, then the other side is placed at a disadvantage unless it follows suit. When Michael Walzer talks uh, of the war convention and includes the prohibition on attacking non-combatants within it, he makes it sound as if the prohibition stems from an agreement. Such an agreement might lapse if one side abandoned it. But Walzer's actual account of the moral basis of that prohibition is rather different and somewhat nearer the account I've given earlier. That account grounds the prohibition in the fact that non-combatants are not prosecuting the evil to which one's violent measures are a defence so one gains no moral licence to attack them, by contrast, for instance, with the permission to defend oneself against the actual aggressors. Where there are explicit agreements to respect the immunities of non-combatants, and there are, are, of course, in in national law, that adds icing to the moral cake, but the cake's essential ingredients seem independent of the agreements. A recent version of this uh, tit-for-tat strategy has been advanced by Michael Gross in his very interesting book, Moral Dilemmas of Contemporary War, Gross has many uh, significant things to say about asymmetrical warfare in the course of arguing for the relaxation of many of the traditional moral norms aimed at in regulating and civilising war, insofar as that can be done, 
but he is at his most unconvincing in offering the mutual right to a fighting chance, as he calls it, as a prime argument for weakening respect for the immunity of non-combatants that is at the heart of prohibitions on terrorist acts. Gross is concerned that insurgents or revolutionaries might, might not have such a right unless they can attack non-combatants, might, might have the right to a fighting chance. But he is as much or more concerned that powerful state armies might be denied this right by the difficulties they face in combating their weaker asymmetric opponents. So in speaking of the Second uh, Lebanese War of 2006, Gross worries that the immunity of non-combatants may mean that the stronger side, quote, quickly runs out of targets, which he says very much in a tone of regret. Gross is very concerned to balance the moral and legal restrictions on the conduct of war against the requirements of military necessity. But these are not two values to be traded off at the discretion of the military or their ethical advisers. What is necessary for military success is already constrained by moral and legal restraints. Perhaps you can only defeat the enemy by poisoning his water supplies or slaughtering his children, but that does not license such atrocities. It means, rather, that you cannot defeat him. This is no doubt unfortunate and regrettable, but unfortunate outcomes such as defeat are part of waging war and count among the reasons for avoiding it where possible. There is nonetheless a deep issue here about whether morality can really bind when its constraints are very severely disadvantageous. Certainly there can be no guarantee that conforming to morality will not prove disadvantageous from time to time. Any moral theory that advocated abandoning morality when it didn't prove advantageous would be theoretically defective and morally objectionable. Nonetheless, certain forms of social contract theorising and other moral outlooks want to hold that when adherence to morality will be disastrous, then all bets are off. Hobbes articulates this very clearly in a famous passage when he says in chapter 15 of Leviathan, the laws of nature oblige in foro interno, that is to say they bind to a desire that they should take place, but in foro externo, that is to the putting them in act, not always, for he that should be modest and tractable and perform all he promises in such time and place when no man else should do so, should but make himself a prey to others and procure his own certain ruin, contrary to the ground of all laws of nature which tend to to nature's preservation. I've criticised Hobbes' position uh, more extensively elsewhere, and I will here have to be brief. Let's begin with the interpersonal, relatively small-scale case that was Hobbes' principal concern in Leviathan, or in this section of Leviathan. The first point to make is that although self-preservation is a great good, it's not the only great good. Many people have been prepared to sacrifice their lives, not only for others, but for moral principles. And it's far from clear that such behaviour is irrational. Hobbes's version of natural law has some continuity with medieval accounts, but departs from them in its resolute monism about the basic rational drive of the theory, namely self-preservation. This had been viewed as a fundamentally rational motivation in ethics as far back as the Stoics, who insisted on the primary impulse, as they called it, to self-preservation. Aquinas also stressed self-preservation in his account of natural law, but goes on to give a more pluralistic theory of the basis of such law in which other values mitigate the drive to self-preservation. That this is no mere theoretical possibility of interest only in academic exegesis is clear from many historical situations. Even in the Nazi death camps, where the breakdown in conditions of mutual compliance with moral dictates approximated something like a state of nature, there were examples of resolute commitment to moral norms that defy the Hobbesian outlook. 
I've discussed this issue more fully elsewhere, so we'll merely remark here that buying your survival at the cost of taking innocent lives is not obviously a price worth paying. Moreover, it's often advocated where survival is not the issue, but merely the gaining of an important advantage or greater security. And moreover again, the efficiency of the tit-for-tat response is by no means assured. There are other matters raised by this appeal to survival that I'll consider under the heading of supreme emergency. Uh, I've got a section which I'm going to skip, uh, and I'll just go through the uh, PowerPoint headings so that people can get an idea of what it was about. This is a section on uh, really uh, not so much a justification of um, terrorism, uh, but a justification of acts that people are inclined to call terrorism. Uh, And the idea is to produce a uh, version of collective responsibility which shows that the people you think are not responsible and therefore uh, not anyway responsible, therefore not legitimate targets for attack, really are. And it culminates in uh, Osama bin Laden's view, uh, which, as I, I say in a fuller version, of, uh, in the bit I'm omitting, does show some rather deep misunderstandings of the nature of the United States electoral processes. Um, the fifth justification, that was the fourth, the fifth is the defence of redistributive justice. This is um, urged by Virginia Held, who doesn't advance it as a utilitarian or consequentialist consideration. Her basic idea is that when the rights of some group of innocent people have been violated, then the violation of the rights of other innocent people may be justified by an appeal to distributing uh, to distributive justice. The basic scenario is a society S1 in which Group A enjoys the satisfaction of human rights, both morally and legally, but Group B does not. This is contrasted with a society S1, where both groups, sorry, S2, where both groups equally enjoy respect for such rights. Held's argument is that given certain empirical assumptions about the effectiveness of terrorism in moving from S1 to S2, then distributive justice allows members of Group B to use terrorism against members of Group A. Indeed, since we are talking of the demands of justice, it may be suspected that allows here is too weak. In cases of such seriousness, the imperatives of justice are surely strong enough for the word requires or demands. But since uh, Virginia's explicit claim is couched in terms of permission, I will consider the case solely in terms of allows. Hell's case is partly dependent on certain empirical facts that she basically brackets in her discussion. Uh, These concern the precondition that the remedial rights violations are likely to be effective in moving from the disharmonies of S1 to the harmonies of S2. Powerful members of Group A already regard the people in B as unworthy, and this disregard is likely to intensify and spread through their group with counterproductive effects for the proposed distribution. These effects are of two kinds. First, the reinforcing of the determination of members of A not to move to S2, And is second, even if the movement occurs, the production of a degree of hostility that hardly makes it likely that the members of the two groups will be genuinely according each other the moral respect that underpins legal rights. These empirical considerations about the effects of the proposal are ultimately relevant to evaluating it as a proposal about a just distribution, since the effectiveness of distributive measures is surely relevant to the question of implementation. 
Nonetheless, I'm not going to press this point since Hell's proposal is more significant uh, for the deontological claim she makes given the assumption of effectiveness. There are several potential sources of confusion in this argument. The first concerns what terrorism is and hence what human rights violations we are referring to. The second concerns issues of group responsibility. On the definition of terrorism, Held wavers somewhat in different chapters of her book. This is taken from her book on uh, uh, terrorism. Uh, arguing at times that there's no point in defining it, at others that those who define it in terms of the intentional killing of the innocent or non-combatants are wrong, and generally refusing to offer a definition uh, in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions or anything like them. But in this chapter, that, uh, where she puts forward this uh, uh, defence that I'm considering, she gives a disjunctive condition as perhaps sufficient to turn political violence into terrorism, namely either the intentional harming of non-combatants, so the tactical definition as one part of the, of the disjunct, um, or the intentional spreading, spreading of fear, which as we saw was close to Bob Gooden's definition last time. So if we're justifying terrorism, then part of what we justify could be the intentional killing of non-combatants. As we've seen, there's a debate in current just war theory about whether all non-combatants are innocent in the sense of having lost their right not to be killed. And Held thinks that some non-combatants are not innocent, or at least, at least less innocent than many combatants. I think this may be true of some civilians, but I distinguish civilians from non-combatants and don't think it's true of non-combatants proper. But no matter for our present purposes, since there will be palpable innocence in Group A, babies, young children, brave critics of A's repressive policies towards B, people who have been imprisoned for trying to change the repressive policies and so on. Held is committed to the view that it's permissible to kill some or all of these people if it's reasonable to believe that only this will move B from A, uh, will move B and A from S1 to S2. What could make such a suggestion palatable to a deontologist like Held? It's important to note that Held is not resorting to a dirty hand story, since that would require the killing of the innocent to be and remain a violation of justice, though made necessary by the considerations of supreme emergency, which we're going to talk about later. For Held, the killing is precisely an instance of justice, but the proposal surely misconstrues distributive justice. To see this, consider an example she uses of a redistribution that she sees as parallel to her proposal. This example concerns the unequal provision of police services in a community, where a society dominated by uh, Group A provides very poor uh, police arrangements to establish security and personal safety rights for members of Group B, there is clearly a case in justice for redistribution. But the case requires redistribution of protective police services, not directly redistributing deaths and injuries. It would hardly be, for instance, a requirement of justice to increase the number of deaths and injuries all round just to make them equal in both, in both groups if by some freakish chance uh, that would result in movement from S1 to S2. Held doesn't, of course, envisage this, but the case shows how carefully you must proceed with the idea of distributive uh, justice with regard to harms. 
She thinks of distributing police more fairly with the consequence that there will be more deaths, injuries, burglaries in Group A and fewer in Group B. This may well be a regrettable but required consequence of a fair distribution of what are basically still protective services. It is still protection that's being distributed, not killings and maimings per se. What the example obscures is that the terrorism proposal is aimed at licensing agents to intentionally commit murders by way of distribution. The full implications of Hell's proposal are masked somewhat uh, in her chapter and made more palatable by her tendency to imply some form of guilt or responsibility for every member of A. So she says, quote, if transition to a situation such as S2 involves violations of the rights to personal safety of the oppressing groups, why should this violation be less unjustifiable than the other? End of quote. The reference to oppressing groups carries the problems of strong collective responsibility, which I discussed in the section that I skipped over. Are the babies and children in A oppressing merely because they belong to an oppressing group? Are the activist persecuted critics in A themselves oppressors merely by belonging to an oppressing group? Surely not, but a negative answer to these questions should strictly be irrelevant to Hell's proposal, even though it should, I believe, make it morally repugnant. Elsewhere, in her book chapter on group responsibility for ethnic conflict, Held says that ethnic groups have a responsibility for ethnic crimes committed by their members, but it's unclear what this implies for the distribution of responsibility to all members of the group. On the one hand, she cautions against the idea that attributing such communal responsibility amounts to saying that all individuals in the group are equally responsible or even responsible at all, which is, of course, my point. But she nonetheless holds that even people who protest and dissociate themselves from their group's crimes have a diminished responsibility for them. She gets to this conclusion partly through the idea that ethnic group members should take responsibility for ethnic group crimes and partly by arguing that benefiting from wrongdoing creates responsibility for it. But neither of these moves is convincing. The concept of taking responsibility is best read as accepting responsibility for remedying the effects of some wrongdoing, not as being responsible for its occurrence. Hell's resort to the concept hovers disconcertingly between the two meanings. Can we seriously maintain that an English Jew with no specific connections to Israel, who is fiercely critical of Israeli war crimes against Palestinians, nonetheless has some responsibility for them merely because she's Jewish? or that a Han Chinese five-year-old bears some responsibility for Chinese persecutions of Tibetans. As for benefits, the fashionable idea that A is unintentionally benefiting from B's wrongdoing somehow makes A responsible for the wrongdoing seems to me, at a minimum, to need far more argued support than it gets from her, from held. And absent the usual conditions for individual responsibility, I doubt that ethnic membership plus unwitting benefit will yield any interesting case for attributing personal responsibility or liability. Held supports her case by citing the potential advantages, this is a further move, uh, the potential advantages of holding group members responsible for things they haven't done. 
This is something that uh, Philip Pett is also quite keen on. These include such things as making those members more concerned to avoid such group wrongs in the future. This seems to me to be an uncharacteristic resort to typical and rather crude utilitarian thinking, whereby scapegoating is fine if it has good results. But just as wrongly condemning an innocent person remains an injustice, even if it's done to promote the greater good, so falsely attributing responsibility remains a false attribution, even if it's done to promote good effects. Nor is it clear that such a project will have the good effects, since being blamed for what others have done, even if they're one's relatives by ethnicity, is all too likely to create resentment and intransigence. Justification, finally, uh, by supreme emergency. Uh, Here I repeat, uh, to some extent, things I've said elsewhere, so bear with me if you're familiar with it. It's always good to be reminded of the truth anyway, I think. A sixth and final justification proceeds via the route of supreme emergency. This is the justification offered by Michael Walzer for some of the British employment of state terrorism in the city bombing campaigns of World War II. Walzer does not explicitly offer supreme emergency as a justification for sub-state terrorism. Indeed, elsewhere, he argues, with a qualification to be mentioned later, that this recourse is unavailable to such terrorists, sub-state terrorists. Before dealing with the implications of his position for different forms of terrorism, I should explain what the nature of supreme emergency is envisaged to be in Walzer's writings. And there's a certain amount of uh, fluidity about what he says. He introduces the idea in his influential book, Just and Unjust Wars, and offers it as an alternative to the sort of exemptions from the principle of discrimination likely to be offered by utilitarian or other consequentialist theorists. He doesn't use the expression dirty hands in that book, but supreme emergency is obviously in the tradition of dirty hands, a phrase which Walzer has introduced into the philosophical literature in an earlier article. In fact, he makes it clear in a later reflection on supreme emergency that this is so, that supreme emergency is indeed the prime case of dirty hands. Unlike the utilitarian theorists that Walzer seems to have in mind, he doesn't want to treat the immunity offered by the non-combatant restriction as profound. And he worries about... Sorry, he does want to treat the immunity offered by the non-combatant restriction as profound. And he worries about any permissions to break, break it. He doesn't believe that ordinary calculations of utility can possibly override these sort of constraints. Nonetheless, Walzer and those who think like him firmly believe that certain circumstances can allow the regrettable but morally painful choice to violate such deep norms. basic idea we may take here from the dirty hands tradition, plausibly traceable to Machiavelli that Walzer has revived, is that certain necessities of life may require the overriding of profound and otherwise absolute moral prohibitions in extreme circumstances. Walzer's defence of the terror bombing of German cities in World War II in terms of supreme emergencies, clearly in that tradition, but we should note that he doesn't defend the bombing unequivocally. He thinks, though it was morally wrong as a violation of the principle of discrimination, it was nonetheless justified by the plea of supreme emergency, but only in the early stages of the war. In the later stages, it was just plain morally criminal, since an Allied victory could reasonably be foreseen on the basis of morally legitimate targeting and fighting. The bombing of Dresden was therefore an outright atrocity, though the bombing of other German cities up to 1942, roughly, was not. 
He's clear that the bombing in this earlier phase was a violation of the principle of discrimination and actually refers to it at one point as terrorism. It was morally wrong and implies guilt, but had to be done. Waltz's use of the category of supreme emergency here <coughs> is based on the idea that the need to defeat Nazi Germany was no ordinary necessity. The enormity of Hitler's regime and its practices was such that his extended empire would have been a disaster for most of the people living under its sway. In addition, the threat of that victory was present and urgent and the bombing of German cities aimed directly at the civilian population was the only offensive weapon the British had. I've elsewhere argued against the strength of Waltz's claim that the threat of Nazi Germany, though certainly dreadful, was quite distinctive in requiring a supreme emergency in the early stages of the bombing, where other state conflicts, most notably the war against Japan, which he contrasted with, were not. I won't repeat that argument here. Instead, I want to address the idea that supreme emergency can justify sub-state uh, terrorism. Uh, I think I'll just leave a little bit uh, out here. Um, <clears throat> so Walter denies that supreme emergency can justify sub-state uh, terrorism uh, in most of his writings, but I will om omit a detailed account tracking his journey through uh, the territory and just ask... Uh, why should states or the political communities they represent enjoy the uh, supreme emergency licence when other groups uh, do not? In other words, what is the basis of Waltz's pro-state bias? This qu uh, these questions are particularly pertinent when we admit, as Waltzer earlier did, that states can employ terrorism in the tactical sense. The primacy of the political community that Walzer sees as validating the special role of most states is highly suspect. Walzer admits of individuals that they can never attack innocent people to aid their self-defence. He then adds, quote, but communities in emergencies seem to have different and larger prerogatives. I'm not sure that I can account for the difference without ascribing to communal life a kind of trans transcendence that I don't believe it to have, end of quote. Walzer goes on to try to locate the difference in the supposed fact that the survival and freedom of political communities are the highest values of international society. Well, perhaps these are the highest values of international society, but that's hardly surprising if one construes international society as a society of recognised states. What is needed at the very least is an argument that locates the survival and freedom of states as the highest human value and one that's capable of justifying the overriding that supreme emergency requires. I doubt that any such argument exists. We should certainly avoid the temptation to identify the survival of a state with the survival of the regime that runs it. But neither should we identify the survival of the state with the survival of its subjects. Some states may deserve to perish, and their former subjects may be better for their demise. And even where threatened states do not deserve to perish, their disappearance is not equivalent to the massacre of their subjects or citizens. Nor is it enough to point to the undoubted value of political life, for there are many other values, such as family relationships, friendship and moral integrity, that are equally, if not more, significant. And even if some argument could show the preeminent value of political life and the, and the life it allows, sorry, of political community and the life it allows, this would still leave a gap between political community and state, a gap that Waltz's argument here obscures. 
<coughs> I stress here because in later publications Waltz is more explicit about the gap and qualifies his position on terrorism, something I discussed below. At least some revolutionary or dissenting groups can surely plausibly claim to represent political communities, even though they don't have a state, and to deploy violence in defence of a threatened political life. If so, the value that is supposed by Walzer to legitimate resort to supreme emergency should be available to them as well. Yet that's what Walzer is at pains to deny. The contrast in, in treatment is stark in what Walzer says of the terrorist excuse that attacking the innocents is the only option they have. Walzer objects to this that other strategies, uh, Walzer, I should just add in parenthesis, doesn't distinguish between excuses and justifications in a way that's commonly done nowadays in the writing around areas in war and which has some general plausibility. Uh, he, he tends to run them together. Um, so he, he objects to that, that it's the only option. That other strategies are available if you're opposing liberal and democratic states and that terrorism never works against totalitarian states. In discussing what he treats as a further excuse that, quote, terrorism works and nothing else does, unquote, he adds that this efficiency excuse depends for its success on, on that of the only option excuse or of the structurally similar last resort. Indeed, these three are closely related, and as Walter admits of the efficiency test, it goes beyond an excuse and aims at a justification in consequentialist terms. That's one point where he does distinguish the excuse and justification. If so, the question of a dirty hands justification surely arises, and Walzer even mentions dirty the dirty hands of the terrorists, but he doesn't invoke any form of supreme emergency on their behalf. He just means something nasty by dirty hands there. This must, at least, this must be at least in part because Walzer thinks that the consequentialist considerations are defective in their own terms. As he argues, I quote, I doubt that terrorism has ever achieved national liberation. No notion that I, nation that I know of owes its freedom to a campaign of random murder, although terrorism undoubtedly increases the power of the terrorists within the national liberation movement. Well, these arguments are hardly decisive as they stand, and they become... I should have said that these arguments uh, are developed in a separate article. This isn't from Just and Unjust War. They're hardly decisive as they stand, and they become still less persuasive when we set them against Waltz, what Walzer says of the World War II bombings. As to the arguments themselves, the claim that terrorism will work and nothing else will need not mean that terrorism must work all by itself, as Waltz's comment about failure to achieve national liberation might suggest. The nothing else claim need only mean that nothing else will fulfil the role that's been assigned to terrorism. Hence the terrorist is not committed to the view that national liberation can be achieved by terrorism alone. So understood, the question is whether terrorism has ever made a crucial, irreplaceable contribution to national liberation or the achieving of the significant revolutionary goals, whatever they are. To say the least, that's a very difficult matter to decide. Did the terrorism of groups like the Stern Gang play such a part in establishing the State of Israel? But in any case, the question is structurally very similar to that Waltz opposes for the legitimacy of the British bombing. Waltzer is sympathetic to the only option story for the early stages of the terror bombing, even while admitting uh, that serious studies subsequently showed uh, the campaign to have been futile on its own terms. 
He thinks that in this case, for the states, and in this case for Churchill, Churchill had to gamble because the stakes were so very high and the danger imminent. Walter doesn't, of course, think that this means that probability has no relevance to the gamble, but just that the estimated probability doesn't have to be set so high. It can also be pretty vague. As Walter says of the bombing, quote, it makes no sense at this point to quantify the probabilities. I have no clear notion what they actually were or even how they might be calculated given our present knowledge, nor am I sure how different figures, unless they were very different, would affect the moral argument, unquote. This, of course, is strikingly at odds with what he says about the non-state terrorists who argue that attacking non-combatants is the only option they have. They have no such latitude with probabilities, no matter how imminent and awful the threat. It seems that threats to their political community can never be great enough to constitute the sort of immeasurable evil that Walter sees in the Nazi threat. I'm at a loss, inevitably, about gauging immeasurable evils. But it would not seem impossible that various struggles (coughs) against brutal, murderous, tyrannical regimes could sometimes reasonably be viewed as confronting supreme emergency. Of course, they cannot hope to succeed against a totalitarian state, according to Walter, because terrorism never can succeed against a totalitarian state. Yet the terrorism of the bombers was itself directed against a totalitarian state and was posited on the subjects of that state being able to influence the state's policy and workings. It didn't succeed, uh, but of course that doesn't seem to worry Walter when he's discussing the probabilities for that particular case. I should conclude, we should conclude that the attempt to restrict the supreme emergency exemption to states is unpersuasive. Either it applies more generally or it doesn't apply at all. More recently, Walzer himself seems to have come close to this conclusion, much as it goes against the grain of his discussion uh, in the uh, article I've been quoting from, which is called Terrorism, a Critique of Excuses. In his reprinting of this essay, Terrorism, a Critique of Excuses, in his later book, Arguing About War, Walzer has added a bracketed paragraph, the only change to the article, that partially acknowledges the problems posed by an asymmetry between states and sub-state by uh, political groups. He now says that considerations of supreme emergency may also apply to sub-state terrorists, but, quote, only if the oppression to which the terrorists claimed to be responding was genocidal in character. Only if it was genocidal in character, unquote. And he goes on to construe this as involving, quote, an imminent threat of physical... Uh, sorry, an imminent threat of political and physical extinction. And he then claims that this has not been true of any recent terrorist cause, and that's why it doesn't apply to terrorism. Well, it's hard to adjudicate this claim, partly because of difficulties with the term genocidal, but two comments are appropriate. First, if genocidal means political and physical extermination of people because of their membership of an ethnic, national or religious group, which is what his... uh, explanation of it seems to suggest, then there seem to be genocidal aspects to many conflicts in which sub-state agents have been tempted to terrorism. Russia's attack upon Chechnya and Israel's attack upon the Palestinians could arguably be so treated. Second, the criterion for supreme emergency that Walzer here acquires of sub-state terrorists seems much stricter than that used for states. In his essay, Emergency Ethics, 
Walzer speaks of the criterion as, quote, either the elimination of the people or the coercive transformation of their life, of their way of life. Either the elimination of the people or the coercive transformation of their way of life. But if the second clause is applicable to states, then why not to sub-state groups, quite a few of which may plausibly appeal to that, the coercive transformation of a way of life. My general point so far has been to throw suspicion on the idea that that the supreme emergency defence is only available to states. If it works for them, it may very well work for sub-state groups too. Apart from the plea for consistency, however, I would also argue that the appeal to supreme emergency is too dangerous to be allowed as a publicly available vindication for terrorism, no matter how rare the circumstances are meant to be. Walzer himself admits that the city bombing he believes to have been justified led on to wholly unjustified episodes such as the bombings of of Hamburg, Dresden, Tokyo, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He does not indeed intend the supreme emergency story to apply to those cases, but it's no accident that could have been uh, appealed to. Any group, state or sub-state, will see the prospect of defeat by a serious enough enemy as a disaster. Virtually any armed conquest could plausibly be held to involve coercive transformation of a way of life. So this phrase, phrase opens the way, despite Waltz's concern to avoid it, to widespread resort to supreme emergency. And this prospect should be apparent to anyone considering the validity of allowing the exemption. In the context of counter-terrorism, of the counter-terrorism atmosphere sustaining so much international politics at present and arousing so much fear of threats to ways of life, the promulgation of a doctrine of supreme emergency is is fraught with danger. A final point that the supreme emergency justification naturally introduces is that contemporary moral philosophers are generally averse to absolute prohibitions of any sort. Hence they are bound to be, for them, imaginable circumstances in which terrorism, slavery, judicial imprisonment of the innocent, rape, torture and so on can be justified. This may strike the average layperson, not to mention the average lawmaker, as pretty astonishing. But it raises a difficult question of how one can argue for or against an absolute ban on terrorism. Those who reject the idea of exemptions from this profound moral imperative are arguing with people who take it as a basic fact that there will always be exemptions to any moral prohibition. It's hard to see how either side can have a compelling case in such a situation. Nonetheless, it's worth pointing out several things. One is that even utilitarianism accepts absolutes insofar as it treats its basic injunction to act so as to produce the greatest good of the greatest number as beyond exemptions. And much the same is true of various forms of consequentialism. Indeed, it's plausible that something similar will be true of all moral theories. So I suspect that the debate's not really about whether there are moral absolutes, but about how many there are and at what level of thinking they may be found. Of course, any absolute commitment will face problems when the commitment confronts messy moralities that challenge the very basis of the commitment. The category of moral dilemma itself speaks to the alarming prospect that our deepest moral imperatives may not always cohere. It may be that faced with certain ghastly concrete choices, such as that facing the mother Sophie in the book and film Sophie's Choice, the resources of even the richest morality run out. But if so, I think we do violence to our situation by proclaiming in advance general conditions or circumstances in which exemption must be given to our deepest moral prohibitions. 
It's pertinent here that moral dilemmas should be distinguished from dirty hands scenarios. In the former category, there's no ordained right answer to the problem, whereas in dirty hands scenarios and supreme emergency, it's supposed to be obvious that one should choose the necessary course over morality. Consider the parallel with rape. According to supreme emergency, or even what I've elsewhere called balanced exceptionalism, which I haven't discussed here, we cannot exclude the possibility that rape may be required to preserve some great values, such as community continuity. But anyone who goes about seriously contemplating conditions under which rape may be obligatory, though still immoral, as insisted by advocates of the dirty hands category, is tempting fate. Indeed, we need to be careful about cultivating attitudes that undermine the resolute commitment to virtuous action. The path of exemptions in either of its forms does just this. I don't want to say uh, with uh, my former teacher Elizabeth Anscombe that the advocates of dirty hands or balanced exceptionalism uh, should should not be spoken to because, as she used to say, they show a corrupt mind. Discussion should always proceed with people who show goodwill, but any such discussion should be open about the dangers attendant upon attitudes adopted. Two things are important in doing moral philosophy. One is intellectual openness to a range of views, including confronting ones. The other is an awareness that intellectual exercises in this area can have profound implications for life. In the case of terrorism, we face a choice. Either we insist that major terrorism, as characterised by the tactical definition, is always morally wrong and never to be allowed, or we accept that there can be circumstances in which the values served by terrorist acts are so important that it's right to do them. If the latter then this exemption for supreme emergency or otherwise cannot be allowed, I've argued, only to states. Its legitimacy must in principle be more widely available and decided on a case-by-case basis. My own conviction is that we'd surely do better to condemn the resort to terrorism outright with no leeway for exemptions, be they for states, revolutionaries or religious and ideological zealots of any persuasion. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so early on, you uh, you kind of I guess you're somewhat critical of what we call the, the posh utilitarian or whatever, right? This. Uh, oh, yeah, this yeah, posh? I was I was thinking of this recent play called The Posh Boys. But oh. anyway, uh, right, but, but it sounds like in the end, your kind of solution to these these sorts of uh, extreme cases is somewhat similar. So you, you know, it sounds like you're yeah. somewhat you know sympathetic to the theoretical arguments, taking time bomb cases and extreme extreme cases. Yeah. The idea is these are I think the idea is these are so rare and you know it's much better if we all just accept we should never do this. Yeah. That sounds an awfully lot like utilitarian justifications for yes. absolute prohibitions. The idea is these are so rare that you know it's better we all just you know have this rule. If we don't have this rule, we're going to become corrupt. Yeah. Yeah. We have less bad Am I supposed to be upset by that? Well, I mean, maybe you're not. I mean, I guess it sounded like you were making fun of this, but maybe you're okay with this sort of. I, I'm making fun of the posh boy thing that. Um, uh, there's some of us who uh, sit above the fray and can uh, uh, can see that this is just something for the others, and, and consequently that if push comes to shove for us, we wouldn't we wouldn't go that way. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't think anything I've said commits me to that. Well, I guess the uh, same sort of idea is that as moral theorists, we can kind of have this, you know, we can tend to this this true, you know, abstract. Well, uh, I don't I don't go that way. I mean, I don't actually think that the um, the scenarios that philosophers construct. It's not that I think they're good, but we, we shouldn't go with them. I, don't, I think most of them uh, are 
fundamentally ridiculous. You know, the sticking bomb one is not one I think make. I think in the end, it, 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 it's, it's classical of a certain kind of philosophical move where you construct the example in such a way that it's got no rough edges. You know, I mean, there's, it's, um, it puts you in a position where the, all the things that happen in real life by way of alternatives or it isn't quite like you don't actually know, but this, that, and that are just not there. And I think that glacial kind of approach is not one I, I like at all. I do think there's some real cases uh, uh, that are more disturbing uh, for uh, an absolute attachment to uh, deep moral principle, uh, but I tend to think of them as in uh, the moral dilemma way rather than in the dirty hands way. So Sophie's choice seems to me to be a, a, a thing someone, if you have cases like that, you should not uh, uh, ignore them. There are other ones from the from the death camps and so on, which uh, uh, one one real one uh, concerned um, some people who escaped from the camp, and uh, one of the people there uh, was a woman with a baby, and and they were hiding from the the, the German pursuers, uh, and the baby started making noise, uh, and she she had to stuff things in the baby's mouth to keep it quiet in full, no, full knowledge that this was very, very likely to kill it, and it did kill it. Mm. Uh, I, what I want to say about a case like that is I, I don't think we should get into the business of saying, uh, oh, so the prohibition on intentionally killing babies you know, uh, has exceptions. I think rather we, we think if anyone faced with that sort of situation has got beyond moral considerations in a way. I mean that there's a there's no way of knowing what's the right thing to do. I think that's probably right. But I don't but I don't want to say that only uh, elitists can have that thought. And in the case of terrorism there are also similar moral buttons? Might be, I suppose. I mean I'd uh, I'd want to know what the case was for it it's I don't think there's a there's a an imaginable case for for it really. I think one thing that's, that I didn't talk about, which I think is interesting on this uh, thing about certain sort of levels and so on, uh, is um, distinction between law and morality. Because um, if you want to distinguish when you're talking about war between what, is, what are the moral um, factors and conditions and principles and so on that ought to govern the conduct of war, and your just war theory is related to that, uh, you might nonetheless want to say that, as you know, Jeff, notori- Jeff McMahon notoriously does, in a very strong way, and I do in a perhaps less strong way, uh, that there's a difference between um, what rules you have for the regulation of war and what uh, the basic moral rules are for war, uh, because the second regulation thing operates at the level of... Um, this practice is going on uh, and we see no way of actually stopping it and both sides are going to think they're justified and so on, what would be a good way to regulate it given that kind of condition that reflects sufficiently the sort of moral things you've been talking about in discussing the moral basis. There is problems in doing that but it looks at at one level though it's right. Now you might say about the absolute thing um, uh, whatever about absolute moral prohibitions Maybe there are the absolute moral prohibitions admit of exceptions in the moral order, as it were. 
but surely not in the regulatory order. Surely the law should be different. The law should be quite absolute. Uh, that's indeed what McMahon does at the end of his book, uh, when most of what he said makes it look as though uh, there'll be a whole lot of people that it's legitimate uh, to attack um, who would normally be thought of as beyond attacking civilians or non-combatants, but, but because they've got some degree of moral responsibility, and it can be quite low, but uh, it looks as though you ought to be able to attack them. But when he gets to talk about terrorism, he says, no, 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 in the case of terrorism, the best rule is that civilians should never be attacked. Uh, and that should be an absolute rule. Uh, and Steve Nathanson's uh, way of doing it is, since it's a rural utilitarian story, it fits very neatly into regulatory talk anyway. Uh, and so it's a bit unclear in the end whether uh, Stephen thinks it's um, uh, that he's saying this is moral and legal, you know, uh, and, and it's the best moral and legal thing. He, he's sort of running them together. Uh, so that's another wrinkle on the thing that I didn't I didn't really talk about. I want to I, I want to see how far I can get with a moral absolute because you know, um, I think there's too much sleaze around really. And got the guy in the blue. Oh, uh, one further point. Um, I was perhaps a bit too offhand about saying to you, well, is that, is that a difficulty for me? Um, I don't want to be a utilitarian, but I, I think it's wrong to think someone who's not a utilitarian can't invoke uh, consequential considerations. I and mean, the way people talk about that's consequentialist is, is kind of crazy, yeah, because they, they always make it look as though if you're very concerned about consequences uh, in a moral theory that has a lot of other things in it, you must have a consequentialist moral theory full bottle, but that's palpably wrong, I think. Uh, but I'd like also to have non-consequentialist account of the thing, which I gestured at there, but would need a lot more work. Yeah, blue. Yes, sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. You're both blue. Right? You're the one I had. Okay. It's grey. Okay. Um, I may have missed something, actually, but I'm going to be trying to think about some of the things that terrorists actually say. Yep. And sort of connect with your schema. Yeah. And, and it seems to me that ter- you know terrorists act quite often use a kind of argument, I suppose you call it an argument from political legitimacy. Yes. So if you take the Basque terrorists, for example, I mean, they would argue that the Spanish state is illegitimate because it doesn't represent the Basque people. So it's sort of yeah. Connection between the community and the state. Yeah. And that will then they'll argue that any law that's made by the Spanish state is, is thereby illegitimate. And, and that will then hmm. um, lead to the argument that they're rather in the situation of an invading country. Uh, the, the Basques are being invaded. That's or their argument. I mean, it's yeah, no, 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 no. Well, let's, let's, no, grant that. Grant that. I wasn't sure whether you meant they thought they were being invaded or they are invading. Oh no, no, they're, they're invading. Yes. You know, the Spanish state is illegitimate. Yes. So the, yeah. Irish, the Irish, the yeah, 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 yeah. British, yeah, yeah. Palestinians could use that argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just wondered whether you had anything to say about that. I sort of missed something. No, I didn't uh, specifically uh, refer to that. I think it's connected to the section I left out about um, uh, the idea that um, we're not engaging in terrorism by attacking these people because these people 
in the way you're putting it, it could be said that these people are uh, part of an operation which is mm. illegitimate and, and doing things to us, the invading mm. thing, coercing us in various ways. Well, I take your line about Osama bin Laden's argument, which I thought was rubbish. Yes, yes. But, um, Mind you, it's used a lot by, uh, by non, uh, you know, uh, awful people uh, as well. The voting argument in particular is very common uh, you know, by, by people so, yeah, who want to say um, it's legitimate to attack uh, populations um, and it has the ironic <coughs> outcome that uh, it'll be legis- more legitimate to attack democratic countries than totalitarian ones where they're not allowed to vote. Um, but I think the voting argument is, is crazy myself, but I'm, I'm happy to talk about that as we go on. But your point, well, I, I think you could say, it may be that it's an illegitimate state. Um, you know, they, they are really oppressing the Basques. And uh, that all goes to having a just cause. Right? And given some other conditions, it may mean that their struggle is overall just. They have no other options but to uh, uh, attack the state and so on. But then the question is, who do they attack? And it doesn't help their argument, really, to say that the Spanish state is illegitimate uh, for, for them, or perhaps illegitimate to core, I don't know which way they'd go. Uh, the real question then is, uh, okay, what are the agents of the illegitimacy, particularly the illegitimacy that's causing the wrongs to us, uh, we can attack them. And then they might argue that uh, they could attack the police, yeah. Uh, they might argue they could attack government offices and so on. Yeah. Uh, what I'm saying is that, that argument won't do them any good for saying they can blow up a kindergarten or just blow up a train station you know, or whatever. Um, apart from anything else, I mean, whatever illegitimacy the state has in their eyes, there are an enormous number of its functions which are doing beneficial things of one sort or another and, and uh, there's no particular reason, reason to think that they should attack those. Um, so I don't think it's a different argument. I think it just slots into this thing, the section I left right. out about. I just wonder what you might say to a Basque terrorist who said, "Well, really, we're in the same position as the French resistance." Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, there are real questions to yeah. ask about the French resistance. I mean, we think yeah. of them as glamorous and wonderful and so on, but it's um, and and certainly they did were very admirable. Yeah. Uh, but the question about who they killed and who they attacked is open to exactly the same questions I'm raising here. Okay, keep us. Uh, yeah. Um, a few, uh, one point and then, then two questions, if I may. The point I, I wanted to make was that it, it was a marvelous presentation of these discrete arguments. I guess the problem I have with these is that, and I think you alluded to this already, is that reality never occurs in these discrete uh, forms of arguments. Yeah. And, and usually, um, most of the arguments you study are, are fairly extreme as, as well, um, that, that you're not likely to encounter. So um, the first question I have is, is whether, in reality, the way we tend to make moral decisions, it might not be philosophically perfect, but the way we tend to make them is a combination of several of these arguments kind of put together in a messy type of form. Hmm. Um, and if I can give one or, or two illustrations, um, if, for instance, you had um, a number of um, SS commanders and their families uh, who were at a convention of, you know, death camp convention, right, their annual convention, yeah. and, and you could take them out and thereby 
per, perhaps save millions of people. Let's say by taking them out, you know, it would seriously disrupt the functioning of these camps. That's true. You'd also be taking out perhaps their wives. Same thing with bin Laden, right? Mm. And perhaps even their kids. Mm. Um, but it's hard to imagine if, if the, the Allies could have done that, that they, they wouldn't have, have done that, especially if they had any moral considerations hmm. under the war, besides that, other than just, just military. So, and that seems to me a combination of several of your, your, um, your, your arguments, because there, there's the, the argument of, of survival, there's the argument of good, of a greater good, Mm. A bit of utilitarianism but there's there's another thing in it too, which is um, uh, which I didn't talk about, but which does figure in the uh, in the theory of war. I mean, moral theory of war, uh, which is the whole thing about collateral damage. Uh, I mean, it looks from your example as though the uh, the, these guys off in there studying better ways to perpetrate their their their, uh, ghastly business. Um, are totally legitimate targets, uh, even though they're not that, that stage fighting and so on, at least on the account I give. But the families are with them, that's the problem. I know, but that's why I say collateral damage is the no. thing. Uh, the, the, the standard story in the just war tradition on this uh, builds on double effect or something like it, you know. We're not actually after the families. And it may well be that this is a reason why there's a compound with the families in them, and then there's the conference room where all these characters are doing it, you go for the conference room. If you decide, no, nah, I could go to the conference room, but I'll bomb the whole thing. That seems to me couldn't be justified in terms of uh, collateral damage because you're directly attacking them. Now, there's a whole lot of argument in philosophy about this, around these, these sorts of cases, but it looks to me as though some kind of um, argument in terms of what it is that you're attacking and what is incidental to your attack uh, is absolutely crucial if you're going to allow war at all. Then there's the nitty-gritty of how you, how you spell it out. Um, normally, the, anyone who tries the double effect move or something like it, there are various other things. You know, Frances Cam talks about triple effects. And she probably talks about quadruple effects. And so on. <laughs> uh, the, uh, there are various devices, but roughly if you're saying, uh, well, we're... Um, we, we, there's a very good purpose to be served by killing these guys because they're planning all these things uh, and that's a, that's a big plus we need to do that but gosh there's this horrible thing that the families are there and at least the children are uh, presumably innocent uh, and probably the, the others it's not clear um, what happens if we attack these guys and kill these, guys, these people then they, the double effect thing says well it, it's if it's incidental to your direct purposes and it's proportional to the good that you're achieving, then it's, and, and I claim anyway, uh, there's no other thing that you could do which would avoid those deaths, uh, even some risk to yourself, uh, then it can be legitimate. But a lot will turn on what proportionate means here, and there's an enormous literature on this that's. Uh, well, not enormous, but burgeoning literature, burgeoningly enormously, uh, uh, because it's a very hard notion to unpack. But but we we get roughly what it's about. You know, I mean, the Israelis. Um, uh, there was an episode. I'll get all the bits, but wrong here. So anyone who more sympathetic to Israel's foreign policy than I am must forgive me if I've got the details a bit wrong. Where where the Israelis bombed an apartment building because there was one 
Hezbollah or uh, one, of the, one of the other guys uh, that they really want to get. But that involved killing a whole lot of people in the Department of Defense. Nothing to do uh, with Hamas or whatever it was. Uh, that looks like disproportional things. Whereas if there'd been some passers-by who might be killed by this, it, was, it would be a proportional risk to take. So I think, I think all those cases get bound up with that kind of stuff, which you know, wasn't a topic I introduced, partly because it is so contentious, but it's certainly got to be discussed in, the, in connection with warfare generally and with terrorism. It's, it's, an, it's a very useful point because uh, I really should say something about that in the expansion of this material. Um, yeah. You discussed Harold's argument for, for terrorism. You mm. also discussed war responsibility. You said, you know, maybe her conclusions are a bit more palatable because she basically holds everyone, all civilians to some extent, morally yeah. responsible. Yeah. But then when you came back at her, you basically said, but look, you know, here, here are instances of civilians who clearly are not morally yeah. responsible. Here is this five-year-old kid, and here's this uh, uh, guy who's actually campaigning against the unjust yeah, yeah. and so on and so forth. Yeah. So why, why couldn't Harold say, it might all well be, but what about um, you know, terrorists that are written in this old world is criminal, right? So they uh, take a whole lot of hostages, as in the Moscow 2002 case, yeah. but then um, you know, they, they have this little tribunal, and everyone can make that case, right? And say, look, you know, I, I should really not be here because you know I actually voted against these guys. Yeah. So I campaigned against these. Guys. I like everyone, you. I, I like you, people. Yeah. <laughs> everyone can make. Everyone can make such a case. You know, it's free to go. As as in fact, uh, these Moscow people, um, you know, allowed all foreigners yeah. to go. That the Russians didn't allow. Yeah. So, um, in, in, in such a case, you know, she yeah. might say, well, I, grant, I, I grant you that there's yeah. certain civilians that are to no extent are responsible, they're all lots of law, and you know, maybe terrorism is not here. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's not going to be terrorism by my story if, in fact, it's the case that, I mean, she. I think one of the troubles with Virginia's thing is she, when she starts talking about this collective responsibility in different parts of her book and so on, um, she sort of can't make up her mind between a, a holistic attribution of some sort, you know, something that's um, uh, got this kind of organic uh, Hegelian picture of the, um, probably that's unfair Hegel, but I could go on with, of, of, the, um, of the community or the ethnic group or whatever it is. Uh, so that they're all in it, and it wouldn't matter what they got up and said, you know, to the tribunal and so on. And then a, a different one, which is more, uh, and a bit more like McMahon's, where uh, uh, various things you've done in the community have actually causally contributed to the, uh, uh, the wrongdoing. Uh, and you're aware of it, uh, or you should have been aware of it, I mean, in McMahon's case, it's got all sorts of things like this in it. Uh, so that some degree of moral responsibility can be non-holistically attributed to you. It isn't because you're a member of the group only, but you're a member who's done something or other. You know, the voting or, uh, as Arma says, you know, they pay taxes and, and so on. Uh, and you 
and you then build that into the story. Um, now, uh, I was attacking both, but the first thing was the group thing, uh, which it's enough just to start pointing out the people who don't, unless you want a sort of metaphysical story of some sort that's, I think, fairly implausible these days. Um, the second one, it's, it's more a question of saying, look, uh, and I didn't do this enough there, uh, the story you tell about uh, their voting or they're not having done something, uh, omissions are also supposed to get into that story too, uh, omitting to do something or other, uh, is just too weak to carry the kind of moral responsibility that we require. Uh, and I did say about her, um, uh, I did say something about that in talking about her. Uh, what was it? She was saying that they, uh, uh, I've just gone blank on it, but. Um, uh, uh, yes, that, that the people should have taken responsibility for something when they didn't. Uh, and I, I think this is just a... Uh, uh, well, I, I'm sympathetic to it in the sense that I think people ought to be much more aware of what wrongs their governments are doing and where they can, and often they can't, where they can, and they can fit into other things that they should do, uh, they should do something about it. That's the take responsibility thing. But I don't think that makes them responsible uh, for what the government do. It means that they ought to do something about dissociating themselves or remedying it or whatever. Uh, it's an enormous jump from that to say that they're responsible in any way for what the, group, what the group's leaders do. Uh, because apart from anything else, even if they do take responsibility, they're very unlikely to have any effect, as we know. I mean, uh, even widespread protests have absolutely no effect on these maniacs that want to wage a war somewhere or other. So similarly with the, with the S1 and S2 things, I think, um, that's, the real, that's the real thing. But if, you, if, if there was some clear-cut case where the members of this thing were so involved in doing it, I mean, they were, um, let's say, they were running a newspaper which was promoting the permanent... Say it's obviously a part of it she's got in the back of her head, they were a newspaper which was promoting this ferociously and spreading hate all over the place. I think, I think that would be a legitimate case for targeting, uh, especially, especially the editor-in-chief. Uh, I don't want to anyway advert to uh, current things about the media, but uh, uh, well, even the Hearst newspapers created a war, you know, at least that's the legend rather than the, in Cuba, uh, American news, Cuba. Uh, Cubans had had the capacity to... to get up to the Hearst newspapers that would have been legitimate target. Yeah, Julian. So this this is cuts across lots of your um, defences of terrorism. So I'm not defending terrorism. No, no, no. Oh, 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 the defence I'm talking about, yeah. But yeah. I just wanted to hear what you, you yeah, sure. sort of head on. So it's a little bit like the supreme emergency, the self-preservation, uh, and so on. But the defence that I've heard is that in many cases there's such an asymmetry in power that the only method mm. of, yeah. of prosecuting your case in the face of alleged severe injustice is terrorism. Yeah. Now, the problem with, with today is that many of these cases, you know, the, the alleged gross injustice and, and spread of extinction and so on is, is difficult to sort of to, to mm. really justify it. But take this sort of case, which is fairly rough edge. 
So, you know, we, know, we all know what happened to the Jews within Nazi Germany. And, yeah. and they clearly didn't have the possibility of mobilising an army and fighting no. the war against no, 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 the Germans. No. And, and let's say that, you know, early on, you know, an intelligent Jew saw the way things were going and started to engage in a, in a terrorist campaign against the Nazis and said, you know, the only way that I think we can try to defend ourselves Mm. is through the use of terrorism against the Nazis. Mm. And, and even if that was unlikely to succeed, it yeah. seems to me that that's a pretty reasonable justification for terrorism in that circumstance, because it is clear that there is gross injustice, there is clear that there's existential threat, yeah. and it is clear there's nothing else you can do. And I find it hard to say, hard to sort of believe this, and say, well, no, you should just roll over and, and let them leave yeah. the death camps, well, because... You know, there's there's an absolute prohibition of terrorism, yeah. and, and you're yeah. not justified in under any circumstances. No. Well, I think part of the problem. I mean, I think it's an insane example in a way because it's perfectly clear that you know some Jewish resistors who really felt something ought to be done about this uh, business uh, would be you know, sort of going around with, uh, killing school children as a way of stopping the Nazi menace. I mean, it just doesn't look to be on the map. But let's suppose for a moment it... So they did that. Hmm? So they did that. You know, a lot of Jewish yeah. school children were exterminated as well. So oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah sure, yeah, 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 sure. Really yeah. Think well, I, I, I think that the problem they've got is, it can be dramatised this way, how, how, does, how do I, when I'm, I'm a Jew in these circumstances, how do I explain this to the, the five-year-old child I've decided to kill? I say, by killing you and, you know, the others I'm going to kill, there's a whole bunch of them, uh, I'm going to prevent all these horrible things happening to me and my, my group. So it's just, a, it just seems to me to be something that... But how would you justify to your utterly child incoherent, Jewish you know? child that you've decided to, to do nothing? You, you'd say to them, oh, there's nothing I can do. It's, uh, we've got this dreadful situation. Uh, there's in this imagined scenario there's nothing I can I can do I mean uh, I could you know poison the water supply in in this town of, of uh, these people but they're not doing anything they're, I'm imagining for a moment the, the thing about uh, I mean there's a big thing with the Nazi thing about just how complicit the German people were in various ways but uh, I'm taking it that uh, lots and lots of them weren't. Uh, yeah, Chris. Is it assumed that a, um, a campaign of targeted assassination isn't even an option? And that's one thing you might do. I mean, yeah. you know, go yeah. for, well, go for yeah. SS leaders and this is, a, this is a very good example. You just don't, you not, don't have the means to, you don't even have the weapons, but you have some force and you can put it in yeah. more Well, when Just also, before yeah. you know, you, the, the next sort of wave of Trains go up to yeah. Yeah. The question is, you know, I, is it justifiable to put it in their water supply? Yeah. And, and that, that's a kind of, I, mean, I, don't, I think that's what, yeah, you know, happened in a lot of these sort of yeah. terrorist yeah. cases. That's no, what no, what happened? <laughs> yeah, but as Chris, I think there's something in Chris's point that can be drawn out. I mean, they don't, the terrorists who do say, we don't like doing this, but this is the only result we've got. You know, enormous number of times, I mean, Walter's half right. Uh, there are numerous other options available. No, of course, I agree with uh, And there, no, and the asymmetric war thing. Yeah, oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. No, I mean, uh, 
it's the wrong phrase, but I, I think one should bite the bullet about that. I mean, there are there are some things that you you can't do to overcome great evil, uh, but there are millions of other things in the real world, rather than the you know the world of artificial examples, uh, that you can usually try. Uh, I think this is one way in which the, the talk about asymmetric, we were talking about this morning, the talk about asymmetric warfare uh, gets, you know, done to bits uh, because uh, one of the things that's been shown is that um, in asymmetric warfare, so-called asymmetric warfare, you know, people do have all sorts of resources uh, against military targets. Uh, that they're not supposed to have because they're, they're the allegedly weaker side. I mean, you know, the, uh, uh, Af- the Afghan resistance to the, the Russians and to the uh, American-led forces uh, has been terribly effective against troops. I mean, they've also engaged in terrorism. Uh, but they've had uh, uh, tremendous success with their improvised explosive things, for instance. And, they, and they're, they're in the in the good position of knowing uh, that they don't have to kill very large numbers uh, of, of enemy troops to make a big impact on what is an invading force miles and miles away from home because they make an impact back home. Um, so that I think there's far too quick a thing about since they're the quote weaker side then there's nothing they can do except resort to terrorism and a lot of cases that's just not going to be true. There may be some, I mean maybe a a real case that we could think of other than the contrived Nazi one, which... Uh, well, the Hutus and the Tutsi don't know. Oh, no, no that's, that's not one for you, I think. Isn't the terrorism I there... there would be one the weaker side was facing extinction. If that side oh, in that, in that sense, yes. As yes. I said, that there was if yes. anything other they could do because of the kind of overwhelming numbers and forces. No, but I mean, what, the, what they... What they ought, had, had the opportunity, what they what they should do it was was uh, deal with the people who were attacking. Them. Uh, it would have been a complete diversion for them to go off and attack some of the people who weren't, because they're presumably, if anything, faintly sympathetic. Yeah. But the, the cases that are often cited, um, are, let's say with, with the IRA or with PLO, is that if they, and I'm not defending terrorists. No, no. We quoted on it, but that if they hadn't done it. If they hadn't done these terrorist acts, they wouldn't have gone on the map. I mean, within a few years of PLO terrorism, um, yeah. or whatever you want to call it, Arafat, his 1975, I think, comes up, and he, he's on the podium of the United Nations, right? And, and IRA, again, would, would, the North, would the Northern Ireland issue have gone on the map? If they, yeah. I'm not saying it's a justification. No, no, no. no, no but with the book Why Terrorism Works, there was a book that was recently put out a little while ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that's their, their argument, that it's precisely... Um, you said a number of times there are other options, other options. They would so say, actually, we don't have other options. These armies are just too uh, well equipped for us. We would take so many losses. This yeah. is the only way. Yeah, and yeah. in a sense, I assume that, yeah. that was the American justification of Hiroshima as well, that yes, they could have fought in other ways, but they would have taken so many losses. Yeah, yeah, the only yeah, way to yeah, it was, yeah. And that's a separate issue. Yeah. Well, no, but it's connected. Uh, one of the things with the IRA and others is that... Um, Part of what uh, goes on about the, um, and I, I mentioned this in the last lecture, the, uh, uh, the expressive thing and the, you know, the thing of bringing ourselves to the attention of the world and so on, uh, they're, they're, that's a genuine motive. Uh, there's um, quite a lot of uh, 
stuff they can do to legitimate targets, but, but which will be called terrorism uh, because of the political status definition I discussed last time. And I think a lot of what goes on there is uh, that they all get mixed up together so that attacking an army barracks in England where the people are not uh, at that stage engaged in doing things in Northern Ireland but are actually capable of doing it and so on, is going to be called terrorism and uh, I don't think it is. Or well, arguably not, given you can specify the role of those troops. Uh, and attacking um, uh, certain forms of uh, government property and so on is not going to be... But that's if they were, if they were able to use If they were able yeah. to, but well, they, the argument is they, did, they can't did. get near these places. Yeah, yeah. Well, they did get near... They, they killed lots of soldiers. Well, the, the PLO would have a hard time attacking, let's say, Israeli army bases. They oh, oh yeah, PLO. I was thinking of the IRA, but the, the, the yeah. PLO would have a hard time attacking Israeli bases. It's much easier bases. to get into a pizza shop or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same yeah, thing yeah, with the yeah. IRA. It's much easier yeah, to plant yeah. a bomb in a shop. Oh, it is. No, that, that's, undoubt, that's, that's, undoubtedly, that's undoubtedly true. Um, but uh, I didn't at any point argue that it would be... It has to be the case that terrorism doesn't work. Uh, in fact, I, I argued against Bolsa that it, it very well may. And there's a great deal of debate about all the sorts of examples that you can bring up about whether it was the terrorism that worked or it was something else. But it does look as though it, was, it, it could be one of the things. I, uh, I, I simply want to say, OK, you, you, you want to find other ways of making your cause known to the world, like writing letters or whatever. Uh, but you don't... Uh, this is one that's ruled out. Now, it means that they won't be... I mean, in certain cases, it means they won't be able to attack army bases. But on the other hand, you know, they, uh, they can attack uh, guard posts in Palestine, uh, which, there, which there are numerous millions of them and so on. They can attack the wall. Uh, if, 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 and, and, of course, the settlers. I mean, it's an interesting question just where the settlers come into the mix, but I think there's at least a case... I mean, a lot of the settlers are armed. I mean, it's a... There's a case for saying that uh, uh, attacks upon the settlers are, are not terrorist. We've overrun by five minutes. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. very stimulating talks. Yeah. Thank you, Tony, for yeah. the Thank you. Yeah.